Minneapolis Police Department. Abolition of it? What yes. did I say? Yeah. We, we don't want no more police. No Is more. that clear? I do not support the full That's the poor, weak, beleaguered mayor of Minneapolis, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Democrat Jacob Fry, who uh, dared say, no, we're not going to end the police. We can't do that. And he got shouted down and sent back. And, and uh, you know, it all fits together. But a great conversation coming up with Lon He Chen, by the way. Always enlightening. Can't wait for that. But um, it reminds me of a lot of the stuff I've been reading about critical race theory and, and, and similar philosophies. In which the idea of my truth is is most important. It's it's brought college debates uh, to a standstill because the thinking now is well, if somebody has more facts or better facts or better counterfacts or whatever, they can't win because look how strongly the other person feels, and we have to recognize that that's their truth. Story out of uh, Guatemala today. <clears throat> There's a bunch of people in this village. Their truth is that this guy's a witch. So they tortured him all night and set him on fire. Objective truth, you see, is a construct of uh, white supremacy and the patriarchy and the so-called enlightenment. What really matters is is feelings and, and my truth. Um, you couldn't tell those people, if they were on a college campus, that there are no witches. This guy's not a witch. He's an herbalist. He's a, he's a Mayan traditional medical specialist, and he's known worldwide. <clears throat> nope, sorry. The mob says he's a witch. He's a witch, according to you know, the way people think these times, these days. Uh, James Lindsay, who's uh, brilliant, he's a uh, professor uh, in uh, the Portland area. Sticks his neck way out. Most uh, of the people on his faculty hate him, but he's talking about the uh, anti-racist thing, the critical race theory. In these times, it's important for everyone to be anti-racist. Many don't know this, but there's a type of academic literature dedicating dedicated to teaching people how to be anti-racist called critical race theory. How reading critical race theory made me anti-racist. A thread. The various twists and turns of my life led me to reading a lot of critical race theory over the last couple of years. A lot. Like books and academic articles, regular articles, so many ideas from so many scholars and activists. It helped me understand racism better. I'll tell you in advance, there's a bit of a twist at the end. Critical race theory identifies racism in our society as a system of racism. System is complex and multidimensional and includes institutions, culture, law, education, how we think, how we speak, how we know it's true, how we tell our stories, basically everything. Critical race theory studies that system of racism, which it calls systemic racism or just racism, and shows the way our unexamined assumptions and biases, including implicit biases, lead us to support and maintain the system of racism, often without even realizing it. White people benefit from the existing system of racism most, so they are automatically complicit in the system of racism. But people of other races, including black people, can also support racism and white supremacy by participating in and supporting the system of racism, which is like everything. Everything you see is part of racism. Critical race theory teaches us that it isn't just our individual actions around race or in cross-racial situations that contribute to racism. We don't just act racist. The system is racist. And we are racist by the ways we support, maintain, and perpetuate it, all of us. Critical race theory offers us a choice about our participation in systemic racism. We can collude in the system of racism, or we can actively be anti-racist. 
I want to tell you how reading tons of this stuff over the last few years has made, made me actively anti-racist. Keep in mind, there is no neutral. According to critical race theory, you are either actively anti-racist or you are complicit in the system of racism, even if you don't do or say anything racist, especially if you don't think you're being racist. That's important. So one thing people tend to notice after reading lots of critical race theory is that they see race everywhere, even though they didn't before. Critical race theory tries to make racial dimensions of everything more visible, and it works. I was shocked for the first year or so that I read a lot of critical race theory with just how much race I noticed that I never noticed before. But I wasn't actively anti-racist yet. I had to, I had work to do first. I had to read more, reflect, get critical about critical race theory. Then it happened. I got what critical race theorists call a critical consciousness. I woke up. I got it. And I could see what critical race theory was teaching everywhere I looked. Race issues are everywhere. That's when I learned to be actively anti-racist. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. when it happened most powerfully, walking around the National Archives, looking at the history of race in America in the Rubenstein exhibit when it hit me. All the critical race theory I had read made me a better person, actively anti-racist. I realized I could look at situations and see them the way critical race theory sees them, which is frankly insanely racially divisive. And I could reject that view because I understand it clearly now. I could see the alleged power dynamics and say, this is wrong. I already knew I was against racism, but once I really got it, I realized that there might be a system of racism in play and that critical race theory is a system of racism. It actually makes racism worse by making everything about race and saying racism isn't everything. To always see race and always think in terms of oppression makes it impossible to have authentic relationships across races. It forces them to be political relationships instead. That's poisonous. Learning critical race theory made me realize just how much. Critical race theory basically teaches you to think about all cross-racial interactions in society itself in terms of how a racist would think of those things. That's effed up. It isn't healthy, and it makes you think the racist thing almost automatically when it happens. Critical race theory tells us that being colorblind, which means not putting social significance into racial categories, is wrong. That's bull-ass. It's not only exactly the right thing to do, it's what it pretends to want for society. Critical race theory makes racists. By learning a lot of critical race theory while knowing that racism is wrong, it became very easy to reject critical race theory as racist bull-ass. Active anti-racism isn't what critical race theory teaches. But you can get there by learning it and actively rejecting it. Once I learned to reject all systems of racism, including critical race theory, it actually I actually became very hopeful. I even wrote the story down. I realized we can choose unity over division, and it seems so obvious now. And uh, and he, he goes on. Uh, he's not done. And he includes a link um, to what he wrote in thinking about all of this. And I, I just came across it. I'm going to get it to uh, Mike Hansen so he can put it at, up at armstrongandgetty.com so you can read it yourself. Um, it's entitled Liberal Reflections from the National Archives, Hope, Pride, etc. Um, and, and he is, he's lefty, James is, uh, but he understands the difference between being a liberal and being a would-be totalitarian who insists that only one set of ideas can be spoken out loud and all others must be silenced. Which is, uh, well, you know what that is, totalitarianism, and it's dangerous. Lon He Chen talking about your dishonest health officials who've taken dictatorial powers over the economy based on the Chinese bat fever. He's coming up next. Armstrong and Getty.
The Armstrong and Getty Show. We have a number of reports from countries who are doing very detailed contact tracing. They're following asymptomatic cases, they're following contacts, and they're not finding secondary transmission onward. It's very rare. We are constantly looking at this data, and we're trying to get more information from countries to truly answer this question. It still appears to be rare that an asymptomatic individual actually transmits onward. As the kids say, wait, what? That was a WHO doctor saying, uh, if you got no symptoms, it's very, very rare to, to give anybody else the disease, which is one of the you know basic ideas behind the giant shutdown after we stopped flattening the curve and just became obsessed with avoiding cases. Anyway, to discuss that and uh, many other related topics, please welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show, the most uh, terrific, Lon J. Chen, uh, David and Diane Steffi, fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution. Lon He, how are you, sir? Hey, Jill. I'm well. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Yeah, thanks for coming on today. Uh, listen, I think we're all a, a little too very, very frustrated, depending on the impacts in our lives, with these county and state health officials who have been granted dictatorial powers during an alleged emergency. Your take? <laughs> Where do we start? I mean, my, my favorite is the, is the amount of what seems to be completely arbitrary rulemaking, right? Oh, so- yeah. Contra, you know, Contra Costa County, which is not that far from where you are, not that far from where I am, they have a rule that basically says you can get 12 people together in your backyard for a social gathering as long as it's the same 12 people, what they call a stable group, or you can have a protest of up to 100. <laughs> now, tell me how that makes any sense. Tell me how that makes any sense at all. I mean, this is what frustrates people. It's not that people don't want to listen. It's not that people have a natural inclination to want to disrespect authority. It's that people don't like the fact that there is no consistency, and there's just rampant hypocrisy amongst these public health officials. That's why people are upset. Well, Jack, if he were here, would bring up the fact that, and we've seen this in county after county, you know, barber shops can open on Wednesday, then restaurants on Friday, but you, you rotten bastards fixing lawnmowers or whatever, you got to wait till next Tuesday. And it's just, it's arbitrary and ridiculous. And, and it seems to be entirely independent of uh, how many uh, hospitalizations and deaths are in a particular area. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think it's just this sort of notion that the government's going to decide what is acceptable and unacceptable activity without any reference point that seems anywhere close to something that's, that, that looks like science. I think that's what frustrates people is the sense that, Okay, you know, it's one thing if government said, look, we have a reasonable explanation for why you can only get a haircut on Tuesdays and why you can only fix your car on Thursdays. But that's not even the case. They're not even pretending to have an explanation as to why things are acceptable one day or another. They're just saying, look, it's because we say so. I mean, they are like, you know, how parents respond to small children. We're being treated like toddlers. And I think that's why that's why there's frustration. I would agree. You're just supposed to shut up and take it. And speaking of parenting or coaching or uh, teaching or or training a dog, you quickly understand, okay, if I let them get away with this or if I nip it in the butt or whatever, that has impact going down the line. And with the protest thing, I think it's an excellent example. Getting together and shouting and chanting in fairly tight bunches is obviously the sort of thing that's going to spread the COVID, but they don't dare shut it down. So, no. so you earn the right to 
associate with other human beings by being militant or angry or something like that, as opposed to an appeal to logic. You're going to get more of that. I mean, these poor nail salon gals and the hairdressers and and the rest of it, they've got to get militant and angry, and then presumably they'll be allowed to open? Well, and I'll tell you, the people that uh, these public health officials ultimately hurt in the long run is themselves. They hurt their own credibility because what happens is, the next time we, you know, we, we let's say we do have a, a spike in COVID cases as we go down the line for whatever reason. And, you know, they're going to be yelling and screaming about staying at home and sheltering in place. And people, understandably, are going to be skeptical. They're going to say, look, you know what? When the time came to reopen and to reopen reasonably, uh, you made these arbitrary distinctions. You don't seem to have science to explain, for example, this distinction that the WHO is now talking about between asymptomatic carriers and non-symptomatic carriers. That, that apparently, by the way, is the distinction. There's a difference between people who are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic. Right. All right. Whatever it all means. The point is people are going to look at this and say, you know what? It's a bunch of hogwash because what we, what we were shown was when the chips were down and you had to make a decision that apparently said, we're going to preference public health over politics. You chose politics. You basically said, I'm not going to criticize protesters because politically it better aligns with what I believe. Right. And, and people just aren't going to listen to you anymore. Yeah. Well, I think that is the message, and it's been sent loud and clear. Now, you're a public policy guy. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at my own county here. I got a, a county by county, state by state map, which is very interesting. And uh, there have been no deaths in, in many weeks now. It says last 14 days, but I think it's nine or 10 weeks. There are a total of six people hospitalized in my entire county, which is vast uh, geographically and has lots and lots of people in it. Um, but we're still observing all sorts of s- strange and inexplicable limitations. You can't rake a sand trap on a golf course, even though the CDC right. said a week, week and a half ago that uh, surface um, the transmission is, is very rare and unlikely. So as a public policy guy, Lon He Chen of the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, um, is the problem that we said, okay, governors, go ahead and declare an emergency, but there's no sunset to it, there's no limit to it, there's no defining of the emergency, because it's it's not been about flattening the curve for many, many, many weeks. So it's, how can we not do this so badly next time? Well, you know, I think I think there's a couple of things, Joe. I think we have to demand that our policymakers give us answers in terms of why they're doing what what they're doing. You know, I, I think to a certain degree, we were also concerned about this virus at the start that we just sort of said, OK, we trust you. Well, it's pretty clear now that uh, that they have not earned our trust in a way that 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 suggests we should just give them a blank check. So I think we have to ask questions. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, I bet you're technically still under a shelter in place order. As am I, technically. But one of the things that really bothers me is that there's no uh, basis for these things now. There's no basis for why things are doing, why people are doing what they're doing. And so in my mind, the way we avoid this going forward uh, is not only by demanding answers, but basically saying, "Okay, look, if you public official have not been responsible and accountable, we're going to make an effort to vote you out of office when the time comes, because ultimately these public health people, they're answerable to county supervisors. They're answerable to mayors. And if these mayors and county supervisors aren't doing their jobs, they don't deserve to be in office. Well, and you just can't give executive power and sweeping executive power to somebody who has only one concern, and that's the health of the people in their county, the county health people or the state health people. Life's a lot more complicated than that. 
and our elected officials are supposed to take in those complexities. Right. They they hand it off to one committee chairman, in effect. Right. They're supposed to weigh what the public health people say against the economic realities on the ground. The fact that people are skipping visits to the hospital or to the health care provider because they're concerned or because limits are in place. They're skipping economic activity because they're told they can't do it because it's not safe. And people's livelihoods are at stake. You know, kids aren't going to school. I saw some data the other day that says kids are falling behind, particularly at the third and fourth grade level, just because of the last couple months they've spent out of school. And, And these are the kind of costs that have to be weighed. And if you don't weigh them, you end up with arbitrary policy that, frankly, not a whole lot of people like. Right. Not to mention the anxiety and depression that the kids are feeling. Lonnie, I'm afraid we're out of time, uh, but really enjoy the conversation. Thought-provoking Lonnie Chen of the uh, Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Great to talk to you. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Joe. And as Lonnie pointed out quite aptly, not only are the, the public health people obsessed with health, they became obsessed with a particular part of health, which is the Chinese bat fever, and we're forgetting preventative care and, and necessary procedures and, and the rest of it. It's just, it's an example of really, really bad governance. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. The Department of Agriculture announced last week that a dog in New York had tested positive for the coronavirus. Oh, that's too bad. Said the cat who coughed on him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. Got a plastic surgeon in Florida offering drive through Botox to quarantined re- residents. That's nice. How slow do I have to get down to, to get jabbed at a safe way? He just leans in the window, jabs you. You keep driving. On you go. It's a circle drive, so you end up dropping him off, but the cars oh, never stop moving. Yeah. No, I'm making that up. <laughs> Arr, what uh, what else was it going to be? Oh, so um, we're talking a little bit earlier about <clears throat> police reform and how now, whether you're an organization or a corporation or a paper or a school or whatever, you must speak out. Silence is not acceptable. But you must not say anything wrong either. And how, in other words, you must repeat what we tell you to repeat or we will have your job. We will have your career, whatever. Um, you've seen a lot of that stuff. <clears throat> Read a brilliant, brilliant piece from uh, Glenn Lowry from uh, Brown University earlier. We've posted that or, or are about to, I think, at armstrongandgetty.com. Maybe we'll hit that next hour if you get the award-winning fourth hour of the A&G show. If you don't, grab the podcast, but it's terrific. Um, in a related story, and this is not at all surprising to me, we've been saying this for a very long time, but a study just came out in the uh, uh, the Journal of uh, Clinical Psychology, I believe. Um, the long and short of it is, for individuals with trauma in their past, trigger warnings are either useless or counterproductive. Trigger warnings alert trauma survivors about potentially disturbing forthcoming content. However, empirical studies on trigger warnings suggest they are functionally inert, meaning useless, or cause small adverse side effects. Um, they Then they get into their methodology a little bit. Uh, groups to either receive or not receive trigger warnings before reading passages from world literature. 
We found no evidence that trigger warnings were helpful for trauma survivors. For participants who self-reported a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis or for participants who qualified for probable PTSD, um, even when survivors' trauma matched the passage's content. We found substantial evidence that trigger warnings counter-therapeutically Here's your key now. They reinforce survivors' view of their trauma as central to their identity. Regarding replication hypothesis, well, that's a little technical. Um, In summary, we found that trigger warnings are not helpful for trauma survivors. Long story short, they, they reinforce that, oh, you're the guy this happened to. You're the gal this happened to. We're going to talk about something near there. You should be traumatized still. You should be affected deeply by hearing what you're about to hear. And people who otherwise would have taken in that information and thought, you know, that's, that's kind of close to what happened to me. That's uh, that's true, what we're reading right now. Um, or just taking in the information, period. Instead, you're grabbing them by the shirt, shaking them and saying, This is going to traumatize you again right here. This is going to really, you're going to go to pieces right now. And not surprisingly at all to us around here, that's not good. It's not helpful. It, it And it, it grossly underestimates people in the way that, you know, Lukianoff and Hyde have written about where we're teaching young people, especially to have mental illness, to go to pieces over the slightest insult, to act like the smallest thing is, is the biggest thing. You have to be, if you don't throw up your arms and cry and wail and screech at your professor, you should be fired. This is not a safe space. Well, then you're part of the, the evildoers, right? We're teaching mental illness. But there you go. Study says trigger warnings are at best useless and probably counterproductive. Trigger warning thing walks arm in arm down the street with uh, cancel culture. Article in the, uh, it's an editorial in Wall Street Journal talking about a couple of uh, flaming examples of counterculture in the newspaper industry. Longtime editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, who'd seen the publication through difficult times, well-respected, was pushed out over a headline, Buildings Matter Too. It was the headline for a piece by their architecture writer and critic, who worried that... How, how, how do you get that job, architecture critic? That building's too tall. That one's kind of weird and squatty. I don't like it. Too many right angles. Whatever happened to gargoyles? Why don't they put gargoyles <laughs> on buildings anymore? I didn't know until fairly recently. Gargoyles are mostly just disguises for drains. Really? Yeah. That's why they exist. Because they had to have a drain pipe come out, but they didn't want a drain pipe. So they have a sculpture. And, you know, allegedly might ward off evil spirits or, or uh, frighten yeah, the kids. Yeah, as a bonus, why not? Right. How about instead of having a drain pipe, we have a wacky, like, demon-looking thing? I'm buying drain pipes. They say this one's just a regular drain pipe. This one does all the things the drain pipe does. And it might ward off evil spirits. Right. I'm saying, what's the price difference, and I think it might be worth it. Exactly. Another buck or two per square foot, or per uh, linear foot, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so this uh, headline was Buildings Matter 2, and it was a top in architecture uh, uh, story that worried that buildings damaged by the violence in the riots could, quote, leave a gaping hole in the heart of Philadelphia. Now, staff members went crazy, of course, deemed the headline an offense to Black Lives Matter, because, and this is the thing I'm, 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 I'm so hardcore about, I value, it's sacred to me that the Black Lives Matter people can say what they want to say. Not only do I not care, I think it's great. I disagree with them. I think a lot of their ideas are dangerous. 
Um, and, and would be terrible, in fact. But they get to say it. Here's the rotten part. The Philadelphia Inquirer isn't even allowed to say that. You must be quiet. You must toe the line or we will end you. We will silence you. And the staff members protested, and no amount of apologizing and changing of the headline was enough. And they, uh, the people involved apologized. Uh, they laid on their back and showed their belly and begged for forgiveness. Not enough. They had to go, fired! Editor Stan Wyshnowski didn't last the week. He may have been allowed to resign, but he was fired. Over at the New York Times, editorial page editor died in the wool lefty. He resigned Sunday after a staff uproar over an op-ed piece by U.S. Senator Tom Cotton, who wrote that military troops should be sent to restore public order in American cities when the police are overwhelmed. The staff revolt deemed the piece fascist. Ah, the F word. That's the new F word. People throw it around way too much. It's fascist, unconstitutional, and too offensive for adults to read and decide for themselves. Now, the Wall Street Journal points out that they themselves opposed deploying active duty troops, but the idea is legal under the Insurrection Act. George H.W. Bush did it in 92 to quell riots in L.A. after the Rodney King thingamajigger. And uh, it's not a thingamajigger. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a beating. It was tough to watch. Um, and other presidents have invoked the Insurrection Act and sent in troops to quell riots, too. It's There is precedent for it. It's happened fairly recently. But a sitting U.S. senator saying, I think we need to do it again this time, and, and he's a minority. I mean, a, a minority opinion on this, and, and it hasn't happened. But Mr. Bennett defended the op-ed on Friday as part of his attempt to broaden debate in his pages. And at first, so did the, the publisher, the, the terrible, the tough-to-take uh, A.G. Sulzberger. But Mr. Sulzberger changed his mind that same day, suddenly declaring the op-ed uh, had not received proper editing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was the editing and should not have been published which is a ridiculous, ridiculous thing to say. It's a sitting U.S. senator who's a quite well-spoken thank you, and he wrote an opinion piece. By Sunday, Mr. Bennett is true blue of progressive as you can find. That's the editor guy. He's out the door. James Dow, the opinion editor who had signed off on the Cotton op-ed, was reassigned. An ostensibly independent opinion section was ransacked because the social justice warriors in the newsroom opposed a single article, just one, espousing a view that polls showed tens of millions of Americans support if the police can't handle rioting and violence. The publisher didn't back up his editors, which means the editors no longer run the place. The activists do. And here's the difference between them and me and them and you, and I'll bet, I'll bet. Be it Maxine Waters or Nancy Pelosi, some Black Lives Matter person, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the uh, social justice warrior, critical race theory writer who gets a lot of attention. All those people, they write an opinion piece in the New York Times, fine, doesn't bother me. Put it on Fox News, I don't care where it is, let people read it. Let people figure it out. Let people counter, uh, counter that opinion with their own. Maybe post a couple of opinions side by side. No problem with that whatsoever. The social justice warriors, though, demand your silence, and they will silence you. And if you, as one of their alleged uh, ideological brethren, give voice to one of those vo- those voices of, let me see, where's the list? Fascist, unconstitutional, offensive ideas. 
If you even give them space on your editorial page, they will come for you and they will have your job. That's the difference between them and us. It's sick and you must oppose it. Some of you, you're in really precarious places. I'll give you a partial pass for not standing up for foundational American principles, free speech, the rest of it. Some of you, I'll give a little bit of a free. It's like a hall pass to go to the bathroom. I'll give you 10 minutes, but not 20. But the rest of y'all, and I know most of you are fully on board anyway, don't be cowed into silence by these people. They are not representing righteousness and good. They're representing grabbing power. And the only power we have, or the most fundamental power we have, against people like that and people with goals like that, is our speech, our free speech, our ideas, and the ability to express them. Do not ever, ever acquiesce to people who demand your silence. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I hear the gunshot go off in my arms. I move right in time when he reaches something. I move right. But my whole thing was to protect those people. A guy drove his car into a crowd of uh, Seattle protesters Sunday and shot and wounded a guy who confronted him. He got out of his car with his gun, made everybody back off. What's not clear to me is the sentence he drove his car into a crowd of protesters. Does that mean like fast to hit them or he was driving his car and found himself amidst protesters i i I just watched the video that i guess is going around and it's not clear to me whether he was like trying to attack the protesters or whether he was surrounded and and panicked i don't know i take it you you don't know either sean uh i don't think he was lost and and took a wrong turn on his way home. Uh, I feel like uh, you feel or I, I, there's no way to know what his intents were. He hasn't. But he did hasn't. he like run anybody over or hurt anybody? Uh, I mean, I know he shot a guy, but did um, the car hit anybody? That I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. Know. It doesn't say that here. Because that makes all the difference. Um, okay, all right. We'll, we'll research that. If you happen to know, you could. Email us mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. Meanwhile, in Seattle, uh, and, and this is, uh, I'm not, I'm sorry, not Seattle, but, uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, this is kind of weird. Cops were slashing tires, I guess. Uh, number four. Oh, sorry. Here it is. I just got back to my vehicle, um, parked in a lot, and the police slashed one, two, three, four of my tires. They've also slashed every other car that's parked in this lot's tires. Every car that's parked here has their tires slashed. Every single car. Unbelievable. I can't get home now. According to the uh, Star Tribune in uh, the beautiful uh, Twin Cities, two law enforcement agencies acknowledged Monday that officers patrolling Minneapolis during the height of recent protests knifed the tires of numerous vehicles parked and unoccupied in at least two locations in the midst of the unrest. 
including in a Kmart parking lot. You're already in the Kmart parking lot. You come out, you, you got your tire slashed. That's not good. State patrol troopers strategically deflated tires in order to stop behaviors such as vehicles driving dangerously and at high speeds in and around protesters and law enforcement. Gordon said the patrol also targeted vehicles that contained items used in used to cause harm, like rocks, concrete, and sticks. While not a typical tactic, I'd say not, vehicles being used as dangerous weapons and inhibiting our ability to clear ears, uh, there will be review of how those decisions were made. So they preemptively popped a bunch of people's tires in the Walmart parking lot? Yeah. Huh. And, it was, and almost universally, it was all four tires on all the cars. Yeah, which is overkill, honestly. Um, that's an odd tactic. <laughs> I, I'd never heard of that. I, how many? Did I say that already? Um, let's see. How many cars was it? A few, a few or a few dozen? Boy, that's just crazy. Towing was not an option. You could not get any tow trucks in there because of the mass number of people in the area. Um, wow. Okay. Well, I've heard everything now. Uh, a little more big city news, if you like. 18 murders in 24 hours inside the most violent day in 60 years in Chicago. It's from the Chicago Sun-Times. Growing up, I was a Tribune man, Chicago Tribune. Much more reasonable. Well, that was back when cities had multiple news sources. Learned. I, I, Chicago still does, but they're both struggling. Yeah, the sometimes was always the tabloid and a little wacky around the edges, more lefty, and uh, we wouldn't have it. Anyway, um, they go through this litany of murder. A hardworking father killed just before 1 a.m. West Side High School student murdered two hours later. Man killed amid South Side looting at a cell phone store 1230. College freshman who hoped to become a, congress- uh, a correctional officer gunned down at 425 p.m. after getting into an argument in the Englewood neighborhood. 18 people were killed on Sunday, May 31st, making it the single most violent day in Chicago in six decades. From 7 p.m. Friday through 11 p.m. Sunday, the weekend in short, 25 people were killed in the city, another 85 wounded by gun gun fire. And I would suggest to you that causing, I'm sorry, calling it, slow down, Joseph, Calling it the most violent day in six decades is inaccurate. It's the most deadly, but partly because of the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, our trauma surgeries have, have gotten so much better, our trauma surgeons. We now save way more gunshot victims' lives than we did 25, 30 years ago. Um, and so, you know, 50 shootings 20 years ago would have been 20 dead. Now it's 10. Um, so that 18 people murdered in a single day is just extraordinary in Chicago. And and some people, some of you perhaps, would say, why are Black Lives Matter not talking about that instead of the police thing? It, it, you don't have to choose one or the other, really. Uh, I'm surprised there is not more activism about um, African-American people killing each other. Actually, I was uh, one of my major liberal news outlets were just saying black people. Are we back to black now? We're, we're not saying African-American anymore, which I found, uh, number one, inaccurate, and number two, kind of cumbersome. Uh, I don't know. The, the whole thing, the ch- changing the nomenclature and, and uh, demanding that you, you toe the line is kind of tiresome anyway. But um, 
It's just absolutely extraordinary. This uh, activist, uh, Michael Flager, you've probably seen him. He's a longtime crusader against gun violence. He leads St. Sabina Church in uh, Chicago. He said it's an open season. Um, he says the, the cops have pulled back. They're not doing anything. They're just trying to control the, the looting and the, uh, and the rioting and the rest of it. And so they pulled out of the neighborhoods. And so the people in those neighborhoods are murdering the hell out of each other. You want to defund the police? That's what you're going to get? God, I can't even imagine the horror if, if the cops did actually completely pull back from a lot of these hoods where they're needed the most. Crimes are not a constant, Joe. They are a manifestation when someone's needs are not met by other means. Yeah, like their need to have that guy over there dead. I need for him to be dead. That is my need. Because he's in the wrong gang or the wrong sub-gang or whatever. Um, yeah, unbelievable. Uh, police involved shootings down significantly in Chicago. That's probably a good thing, although it depends on the circumstances. Case by case, of course. But, wow, rough weekend in the Windy City. Armstrong and get-